difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible, which launched the biggest franchise of the biggest movie star in Hollywood. With this half, we'll look at Mission Impossible Fallout, in which De Palma is long gone, but Tom Cruise remains, 22 years later, shattering bones and risking his life for our edification. With Fallout, the Mission Impossible franchise has, for the first time, used the same director twice. That director is Christopher McQuarrie, who made his name in Hollywood for writing the screenplay for The Usual Suspects, wrote the script for the Tom Cruise film Valkyrie, and has now directed four films for Cruise, two Jack Reachers and two Mission Impossibles. And with a continuity in direction, Fallout is also the first Mission Impossible to have a pretty decent amount of continuity in the plotting, too. The villain from the last film, Rogue Nation, his name is Solomon Lane, he's back, though now that Lane has been captured, his terrorist organization, once known as the Syndicate, has now been reformed into the Apostles. Rebecca Ferguson has also returned as Ilsa Faust, a former MI6 agent who helped Ethan Hunt and his IMF team in the last film, but is walking a bit of an intelligence tightrope in this one. The plot is, of course, the usual nonsense. As the film opens, Ethan tries to secure three plutonium cores from the Apostles, but loses them after choosing to save a team member's life rather than the potential lives of millions. Though lacking in official support as usual, Ethan is eager to seek redemption by getting the plutonium cores back, but he first has to get through a viper's nest of adversaries, including Vanessa Kirby as an arms dealer known as the White Widow, Henry Cavill as a CIA operative sent to shadow him, and a mysterious figure named John Lark, who appears to be the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Whatever the case, it's all a pretense to 150 minutes of spectacular action sequences and stunts, including a motorcycle chase through Paris and a helicopter chase through Kashmir, with nothing less than nuclear annihilation at stake. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. This is the CIA's mission. If he had held on to the plutonium, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Down with the victims. Don't know you need them. Stuck in the middle. You don't understand what you're involved in. You need to walk away. How many times has Hunt's government betrayed him, disavowed him, cast him aside? How long before a man like that has had enough? Ethan, that's not who we are. Maybe we need to reconsider that. How is he? Oh, you know. Same old Ethan. So, I think we talked a little bit in the last episode about how the Mission Impossible movies are all trying to sort of top each other, So, and this is probably the biggest of the Mission Impossible movies. Is it the best, or is it one of the best? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. no. I, I, okay, okay, wait. I, I, we, before we go any farther, I, I have been suspecting this entire recording that Tasha did not enjoy Mission Impossible oh, wow. Fallout, so I want to start with oh, Tasha. No. 
Oh. I didn't love it, guys. Wow. I mean, okay, so here's the thing. There's there's a couple things going on here. One, I think the back-to-back of Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation were just a couple of really terrific, involving action sequences. And Rogue Nation, uh, I think, really proves the point for me that Scott was making about how these films are about sequences, because there's so many sequences in it that I just found really memorable. I went into this with a with a fully open mind, like not expecting too much in spite of the people that were saying it's the second coming of Mad Max Fury Road. I was just kind of open to a bunch of stuff happening uh, in an exciting kind of way. And the first hour of the film, roughly, I, I just kind of felt like, and, and it's another car chase, turning into a motorcycle chase, turning into a foot chase, turning into a car chase, turning into a motorcycle oh, oh chase. Oh, yeah, one of those. <laughs> but it's just, just, I just mean, one, of those. one of those nonstop action thrill rides. <laughs> it just, it just <laughs> didn't stand out to me at all. I don't know. I found myself, I found myself mentally wandering to like movies as disparate as like the French connection and um, the Italian job, just in terms of how many car chases I've seen over the years. And it really, it's ironic giving everything that I just said about 1996 uh, Mission Impossible. But here, I don't feel like I started to get engaged until like human stakes started being a thing, which I just don't think they were at first. So I, you guys were, were in it from the get-go. You were completely yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> taken and mesmerized by this film. I mean, I, I, I like this movie a lot, but to go back to Scott's question of whether it's the best Mission Impossible movie, I don't think it is. And I actually agree with you, Tasha, that I think kind of the back-to-back of Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation is the, the height of the series. I still like this movie a lot. I've actually seen it twice already. And i was fully engaged both times but to go back to the idea of sequences these are probably not my favorite sequences in the franchise there's a lot about them i like and i actually think that bathroom fight is really impressive as a piece of fight choreography and which is something that like i don't feel that we've gotten a whole lot of from this series and like it's not a series i really think of in terms of hand-to-hand combat and kind of going back to the idea of staging a sequence and like showing you where you are physically in the space like it was it was very good at that it's fight choreography and it's fight choreography as storytelling too mm-hmm. there's there's narrative to a progression and a narrative to what happens in that room that, that's its own kind of little story you know, story unto itself yeah. it's also i mean almost a recalling back to that first film it's a clean white space where you can see everything mm-hmm. yeah and where the camera takes the time to explore it first yeah that was the moment that hooked me in but that was also the moment where i actually started feeling the stakes and i will say I was taken very slightly out of it, as cool as it is, by the fact that I've already seen Henry Cavill have an amazing back-breaking like, one-on-one fight with somebody in a bathroom in Man From U.N.C.L.E., mm-hmm. which is a movie I feel like this hit a bunch of the same beats as that, and it did it earlier and in some ways better. And kind of with the idea of hitting the same beats to speak to another sequence in this film, like the chase sequence in Paris really good chase sequence but we've seen ethan hunt do a bunch of stuff on a motorcycle before you know and and it felt like what is distinguishing this ethan hunt on a motorcycle sequence from the other two or three that i've seen in in the series and again really liked it enjoyed it in the moment it was extremely well executed but it wasn't wow the way like him hanging off the burj khalifa was that's something i never would have even thought of and it's like Riding a motorcycle around Paris. Like, yeah, that's something I would expect Ethan Hunt to do. So, and even the, the helicopter chase showdown, you know, like we had a helicopter showdown in the very first in the movie we just talked about, you know, it was a very different kind mm-hmm. of helicopter showdown, but 
kind of the big standout sequences in this movie. Like they were all bigger and more extreme, but they weren't necessarily unexpected, which I think maybe took the thrill down just a little bit from something like Rogue Nation and that like underwater turbine sequence, you know, mm-hmm. which is, it just felt so inventive. Nothing here felt quite as inventive as what I think of as the series at its height. Well, there are a finite number of vehicles. Right. That- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, I, I want the big blimp showdown. Yeah. I, I'm We've already gotten that in a Bond movie. Which which Bond movie was that? Oh, Where what? the uh, with Malcolm McDowell and a blimp sneaks up on the on the heroine. Oh, View from a Kill. Yeah, yeah okay. that's that's uh, not the most most well liked uh, <laughs> James is, Bond movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying, and kind of with you in in that it is. It's the first one where I feel like you can kind of feel the effort to top previous efforts mm-hmm. in some ways. Ghost Protocol is my favorite. But pretty healthy margin is my favorite yeah. of, of, the, of the films. I, I just feel like the action scenes in that are so lyrical, the staging, the, the plot is, is, is smooth. Yeah, I love that one. And it's, it's I think it's my favorite action film of, of the century. But this is like number two for me, I think. Yeah, it, it's, it's really, I mean, just, it, it's, it's a thrilling couple of hours. Well, you know, Scott, Scott and I were talking about it. It's like, it is two amazing hours of action scenes. And like, oh, you know what? You've been good. Here's another half hour. It's probably, probably better than anything that's come before it, too. <laughs> yeah, I think you're ready to, you're ready to say, all right, I think I've seen a satisfying film. I'm ready to go home. And then, then it hits you with the grand finale. I really like this film a great deal. And maybe it's maybe the conceits for the action sequences are more expected, but they are, they're bigger and they're mm-hmm. exceptionally well executed and very, very exciting. It got me, it just hooked me from the beginning because of the, the, uh, business the, with the, the, the wolf blitzkrieg. The wolf blitzer bit is so good. And it, the thing I really enjoyed about it was like, I was initially fooled that this actually had happened. And then I thought, oh, wait, you know, this is like, what a bummer way to start, like, you know, to start the movie. And I thought, then it, I I finally kind of figured out in advance of the twist what the twist was and I just like I just started to get really excited because because I knew when it was going to get pulled that the audience was going to really uh, be delighted by it and the reveal is so entertaining and witty and I really was on board for this film from the beginning but I mean maybe it is you know, I mean there are elements that can't be as exciting as they were before I mean I think of a character like Ilsa Faust who's just a wonderful character and had such a strong introduction and presence in the last film it's like can't reproduce that she's already been introduced i think she has a really cool role in this film too i'm glad she's part of the team and i think the team dynamics in this movie are very crisp and satisfying yeah it's, it's peg and rames as, yeah, as his yeah. backup it's, it's, is and as a fan of this series like even as i am noticing you know certain tropes becoming like very very well trod like they're is a certain pleasure in seeing those tropes and like how they are played this time. And I'm thinking specifically (laughs) of how hard I laughed at the second time that Ethan Hunt was given just a huge wide open space to run at full <laughs> board down, you know yeah. and then like like Ethan Hunt running is uh, Tom Cruise running is, is is a thing but just like the way that this movie played into it it made me laugh and that was its own form of entertainment beyond like how effective the scene was as action does that make sense? I mean, yeah. I enjoyed the running sequence because it lampoons itself. Yeah. For me, that car slash boat slash motorcycle chase, <laughs> I just found the choreography really repetitive. I mean, they, they pull that thing where somebody drives full bore through an intersection with cars headed in both directions like four times, I want to say. And there's just there's so much of it, but the stakes have already been kind of kind of blown early on in that chase. Like the the whole thing is kind of a shell game where they're trying to 
hide the pee where the pee is Solomon Lane. And the second they've got him bagged and in the boat, that chase sequence is done. And then it goes on for what feels like another 20 minutes where the only stakes are Ethan Hunt is trying to shake his pursuers. And then they pick him back up again. And then the chase starts again. And for me, it's just like if you're going to have that much action sequence, you have to have that action sequence be about something. And too much of it was just about can I get away from the people that somehow are still tailing me despite the fact that I've been getting away from them for 10 minutes? I see, I the thing is, I can't take any of that stuff for granted because it's so rare. Because just the idea of physical action and practical effects, you just don't see it. I mean, and so so this, for me, watching these movies, uh, particularly the recent ones, which uh, have been so blown out, it's just it's just thrillingly different and against the grain from what other blockbuster franchises are doing. I just I find myself so much more excited by watching what might be a standard action sequence on steroids being done in the context of 2018 and, and the way movies are being made now. It's just, it's, it's satisfying because these, nobody else is doing this. And, and this is kind of like the way I want things done. If I had my druthers, I'd want more practical effects, more stunt work. And you get a little bit of that in your John Wicks and stuff too. Yeah, so I, say, I, it's almost become a, a subgenre, like action film yeah. with actual action in mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and you I got, mean, I'm, these, I'm on board with that. Atomic Wicks, Blonde, the whole Atomic thing, I'm, Blonde, I'm yeah. on, like that stuff Haywire. to me is, yeah, Haywire. Haywire is great. Off. I mean, I, I just, you, if that's the goal to put together well-constructed action sequences with stunt work and, and practical effects, I'm, I'm almost always up for that. But here's the thing. Every one of these films that we're citing They're fundamentally built on physical, you know, one-on-one, maybe two-on-one, like close action combat. And all of them built around like just bone-breakingly horrifying uh, physical fight choreography that kind of takes your breath away because you can feel the impact of it. And I feel the impact – like that bathroom sequence is my favorite sequence in the film. The scene in the diner uh, between Gina Carano and Channing Tatum is like my favorite sequence in Haywire. Mm. In John Wick, it's – I don't know, every single one of them because they're all kind of samey. But – it's about the choreography and I feel it so much more keenly when people are facing off like that than I do when a car is, you know, driving through a whole bunch of other cars. That Ilsa sequence that, uh, that you cite, like there's so many huge action sequences in these films, but Ilsa's introduction is hands down my favorite Mission Impossible sequence for the entire series. Uh, in the, in the interrogation. In, in, in the interrogation oh, I, sequence I, where he where he pulls himself physically off that pole. I don't even know. It's like a reverse salmon ladder. I don't know what the hell you call that. And the, the jail escape sequence from Ghost Protocol. Like, so much of that stuff is about the movement of human bodies. And it's just, it always, that always fascinates me so much more than the movement of vehicles. Well, you know, in, in, to support your point a little bit, more a couple of you know a couple of uh... <laughs> i love how many of these podcasts start with i can't believe that's your opinion what's wrong with you and then end up with like five minutes of well okay here's about why you're right <laughs> well i'm just saying to support your point about about how exciting these sort of close quarters action scenes are think about like the two close quarters action scenes in kill bill the first one with uh fox and then and then the one i'm really th- the bit with um daryl hannah in the trailer and just you know that space dictates the action and and uh and there's so many kind of creative uses that have to be made of available tools and objects i mean th- and that's kind of that was always jackie chan's yeah. thing too it's like jackie chan you know it wasn't this formalized thing where he was going to take on one person at a time in a, in a large space he was going to get attacked by all quarters and you know say a, a bar and then have to use 
you know table legs and stuff to defend himself those are exciting so but but the film but i mean credit the film for kind of mixing it up a little bit giving you a little bit of taste of that a little taste of uh of him hanging out from helicopters at all well and and the sequence that leads up to that bathroom sequence which is like similar but also like the complete opposite which is the the skydiving the you know the them parachuting into paris oh, yeah. and and that whole thing with paris <laughs> shooting <laughs> yes paris shooting into the the party um but I, I was sitting here listening to you talk about these like kind of intense like two-person one-on-one sequences and like that is also kind of like that sequence like it's just tom cruise and henry cavill but they're just like floating in space you know and there isn't anything around them so like there is this other type of choreography happening here but like that sequence I didn't find that exciting. Maybe it was, and I know it was like it's very exciting that Tom Cruise jumped out of a plane. Good for you, Tom Cruise. But <laughs> like just watching it, maybe it was because it was so dark. Maybe it was just like the way, the fact that they were so far away from each other. Or... Chicago's IMAX uh, has terrible light bleed. <laughs> that could have been. That could have been it too. Maybe because at that moment you're like, why don't you just let him drop? He's a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it tells but, a story, like the like the bathroom. It does tell a story, although, again, that exact same dynamic happens in Men from Uncle. So I, I was kind of a little out of that it's one. Man from Uncle advocacy. I can't. I, I can't. It is, it's weird, but that movie has really stuck with I me know, because I, of the really good character work it does. I yeah, haven't yeah. seen it. I, I know it's got a re, you know growing rep as, as a good movie a lot of people missed, so I should check I, it out. I tried watching it and fell asleep but because I had heard good things from, from you and other people. And But I should probably go back and give it another chance because I, I really liked Henry Cavill here a lot. Um, and if it's, you're saying that it is, you know, of a, of a piece with what I should expect from Man from Uncle, I think I will and probably give it in that one chance. too. Nope, it's it's yeah. him and Army Hammer in just the most brotastic. First they hate each other, then they love each other. Gay ants of all time. It's maybe that should be your thing. maybe Cavill that should be your, just, your next picture show. Yeah, Cavill <laughs> is just sort of a big jerk in this movie. Is is really effective. Like here's here's this guy. He's a big jerk, and you find out he's an even bigger jerk than you thought he was. But I mean, like it's it's he's a brute. He's a brute. Yeah, he's yeah. he's a blunt instrument. Uh, yeah, yeah it, he pulls that off very well. Um, and the mustache is amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you just keep seeing him as Superman, possibly with that mustache CGI off. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw. I heard it was distractingly false looking. Right. The I I didn't you know other people say it didn't really read for me but but uh, the effects are amazing I sometimes miss some stuff like that so uh, to be honest I didn't notice because there's so much else artificial in that movie and so many other problems like we are talking about Justice League, Justice by League. The way. Justice and which yeah. you know overall speaking I I enjoyed Justice League it has like a lot of good points but mm-hmm. it's got enough problems that I was not busy staring at uh, Henry Cavill's upper lip the entire time so many reservations about Mission Impossible Fallout now we get in, in, in <laughs> A semi-endorsement of Justice League. I don't know if we can handle it. Um, this is Tasha's most controversial episode ever. It is. I, I'm basically am worse than Hitler. Uh, well, well, we'll continue uh, to address that particular point. Uh, 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 My worseness than Hitler. Yeah, that, that's part of the. That's it's the first connection. That's our first. That's our first connection. <laughs> Things uh, that are worse than Hitler: John Lark or Tasha. Tasha. <laughs> uh, but we will be uh, right back after the break to talk about the connections between Mission Impossible and Mission Impossible Fallout. What do you think you're doing, Erica? It may be your mission, but this is the CIA's plane. It doesn't take off without my say-so. We need reliable intelligence, and we need it now. Uh, This scenario is precisely why the IMF exists. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. 
a bunch of grown men in rubber masks playing trick-or-treat? And if he had held on to the plutonium in Berlin, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And his team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. And that's why I want one of my own men on the scene to appraise the situation. Agent Walker, special activities. His reputation precedes. You use a scalpel. I prefer a hammer. My man goes where no one goes. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And boy, do they have a lot of things in common, don't they? <laughs> Starting with the title, Mission Impossible. Oh my god, I didn't see that yeah. parallel. Yeah. You, you yeah. know what they don't have in common? Punctuation. Oh, <laughs> oh wait, no, they, wait. I guess they do both have a colon. It's Mission, colon, impossible. You're right. It's, it's an yeah. N-dash and not an M-dash, is that right? M-dash is the longer one. Yeah. So I think it's so an it's M-dash. Like, but it's not, a, it's not just a dash. It's like between the two, right? I don't know. I have. I didn't like oh. break out the ruler when no. I passed the movie poster. This this conversation You've been editing I, copy I, I, on this film, haven't you? Yes, we have. We have used the M dash, mm, and what you oh. have here is an M dash. So, oh boy. Oh my God! It's so much repetition. You guys have just driven this conversation through an intersection with cars going both in direction in both directions like four times in a row, yeah. and I'm so disengaged. I wrote, now. I wrote something for the the post on the Mission Impossible movies, and I was copy pasting. <laughs> <laughs> the title for Mission Impossible Fallout to make sure that everything was uh, square. It's uh, option shift hyphen. Option <laughs> shift hyphen. Okay. Don't say we didn't teach you things, kids at home. We are so, we so are the most than, useful than shift command, podcast. Rather than shift command <laughs> dash. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to put the right length of dash in the title for Mission yeah. Impossible. Keep in mind, that, keep in mind I just want you to, to everyone to know that, that when we were all working together at the Dissolve, it's this kind of business that we'll be talking about the most. It's this kind of like super granular stuff that, that really uh, was the diff- difference maker. It's, it's what put us out of business. It's, it's what, it, the, reason, the reason they laid us all off was because we couldn't decide on the M dash versus N dash thing in a film title. Like, they didn't like our bi weekly meetings on the subject for some reason <laughs> so now it's time for connections <laughs> when we bring these people so wait what connects mission impossible and fallout is it an n dash or an m dash <laughs> well we we look forward to your to your emails and voicemails on that topic but i, I want let's talk about tom cruise because tom cruise has aged somewhat from uh he's aged 22 years from but, the... but has he he has. He looks like such a baby face in the first one. He really does. Yeah, it's more that he looks really young in that one than he looks old in this one. True. Yeah, He looks younger than 56 in this. But I will say, I'll make a couple of points about him in, in this. One is that I think there's there's a really great funny moment in the bathroom sequence where it has gone on for such a long time that he looks just tired mm-hmm. and not wanting to go on. And there's, a, there's, a, there's this kind of like mini moment of vulnerability that I really liked. And that is repeated throughout yeah, the film. Yeah, there, there's a definitely a few moments of people getting one over on Ethan Hunt physically in the in this movie. Yeah, so I like that. I mean, a little bit of rare humbling of uh, Tom Cruise. I don't. I actually don't think it's rare at all. I, I think this kind of to speak to your earlier point about what makes a Tom Cruise movie, I think more and more I'm seeing this in films that have him in action, like him having those moments of having been physically bested. And I don't know if that's touching on the way that he's aging or maybe his ego is relaxing a little bit to the point where like he can allow himself to get that crap kicked out of him. But I mean, as I say, there's there's a lot of suffering in these movies. 
And it all kind of seems to go to the the place that we talked about so much with James Bond torture, where, you know, you, you have this moment of like doubt and fear and agony for the hero, and it makes him more relatable and he, he can come back from it. But to me, it feels like obligatory at this point in Tom Cruise movies, that that moment of I'm not sure I can go on. And then it makes it more exciting when he does. Well, I would say, but to go to the flip side of that, though, I mean, these films and the effort that he goes through to make them is, of course, a, a battle against his age of getting old and not being able to do the things that younger stars are f- more physically capable of doing. I mean, he is... That Henry Cavill couldn't do because of insurance reasons. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I, think, I think I read something oh, about that. That's, like... pretty, that's pretty great. Um, Does he just need to get onto Tom Cruise's insurance? Like, Well, I, I think it probably had to do with his Superman... Uh, oh, sure. Status. Oh, if he broke his lip, that'd have even more stuff to CGI. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, of course, Tom Cruise broke his ankle uh, making this movie. He was oh. out for like nine, eight or nine weeks. And I just, I think, the, the, <laughs> I picture the, Cavill just on a couch, fanning himself. <laughs> you know, kept pulling it out, pulling a. Uh, I want to say he's not like, allowed to get off this couch. <laughs> Insurance <laughs> reasons. And he's just like, "Have you tried stunt men, dear boy?" <laughs> but this is this is Tom Cruise's Buster Keaton, right? I mean, this is somebody who is so determined to remain a star to be you know to that he is willing to seriously risk injury and and risk his life really to entertain us i mean that was something that Mm. buster keaton did all the time that why he's doing it yeah see that's that's the thing it's like i I think like that connotes a bit of desperation or people pleasing to him wanting to do this i think he wants to do it because he's a thrill seeker and he's like i'm in a position where i can do these insane stunt things that no one else can do and i'm gonna because it's fun i think also though (laughs) i think he wants to be the biggest movie star in the world and the avenue by which he can do that has narrowed to action films and it's narrowed even a little bit to mission impossible action films at this point Mm -hmm. um so and edge of tomorrow he's giving it (laughs) and edge of tomorrow tomorrow. well in terms of ones that are extremely successful though um edge of tomorrow which edge of tomorrow was not and and the jack reacher sequel was not and the mummy famously was not Mm. american made was sort of a smaller scale thing but but also not a a huge success being totally awesome being very good so yeah i i was looking at his filmography it's weird if you do you count top gun as an action film i would care Really? No. Do you, like a drama? Do you count? I mean, it's it's a, I, it's a drama with some pretty thrilling action sequences. Do you count uh, Days of Thunder as an action film? I mean, maybe I've I, never seen Days of Thunder. Yeah, I haven't either, actually. But but well, uh, trickle but everybody. <laughs> but I mean, if you, by those, you know, he just Mission Impossible is basically his first action film, and that's pretty deep into his career, hmm. and it's sort of relegated to the Mission Impossible series. You know, more or less depending on how you cut it up up until. You know, you get into Valkyrie and then Night and Day, and then since Night and Day, you know, you have your your occasional strays into other things, but it's almost been all action films since then. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah. As a giant theory of Tom Cruise goes, it is pretty interesting. And it's it's just fascinating that he has been able to call the shots around those films so thoroughly. Definitely. And, 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 made, and made some really compelling choices in, in terms of making a, a series that, that's going to be very well crafted and that, that's going to be 
self-contained and yet still maintain the audience's interest you know uh i mean the resistance to mythology and world building is to be such a big plus <laughs> i just i like the idea of just going into a mission impossible movie and not having known every single thing that happened but did you catch one. the first movie throwback mythology moment in fallout maybe what was white it? widow is max's daughter oh like they're they're wow. having the the oh no the thing honoring her dead mother uh <sighs> and she talks about how do I, max how do i feel about that <laughs> well okay to keep it on the tom cruise subject, sure. though so a question i've been thinking about is has tom cruise made this a franchise that can't continue without him is there a mission impossible without tom cruise because i feel like they've several times brought in figures that are kind of like teased as like this is the person that could replace ethan hunt <laughs> so like there was a jeremy renner character and mm. pie in the sky rebecca ferguson you know oh but gosh. but like I feel like Tom Cruise has made these movies so much about the Tom Cruise-ness of it all that it can't do what the Bond series, for example, has done, you know? But maybe, I don't know. No, no I think it doesn't survive without him because it is it is something he has taken ownership of in a way that, you know, Sean Connery and George Lazenby and uh, yeah. and, uh, and and Roger Moore have not. I mean, they they've been replaceable parts in a larger franchise, but he is the fulcrum, I guess, of this whole thing, right? I don't know. I think it's pretty easy to imagine a a period where people were saying this Sean Sean Connery seems to be slowly aging out of James Bond. You know, the series is over because nobody else could play it like he does. Like I, nobody does it better. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, my understanding is that the Ghost <laughs> Protocol and Renner's presence, and it was originally supposed to be at least set up the possibility of the passing of the, of the torch. Uh, and I believe that script was reworked on the fly, like so many Brad Bird projects, uh, to change it a little bit. And, and Renner gets a little de-emphasized in some ways, a little bit less backstory than we would have gotten otherwise. So, you know, he came back for five. He's absent from this one. But, you know, I, I don't think that handoff is going to happen at this point. But I think the siren call of, a, you know, a dump truck full of money is always going to be like mm -hmm. if if there were two or three of them in a row without Tom Cruise and none of them made any money then I think it might lie fallow for a generation. But, I mean, I don't think anybody's really indispensable when it comes to an action movie, particularly an action movie franchise with this appealing and simple of a setup and this long of a history. Maybe. My, here's my Tom Cruise question. It, has he become a better actor or have people become better at – writing for his range or I think he's good though i i i, I, I reject your premise i yeah. I've, I've always i mean from risky business on i think he's i think he's very good I, I think keeping it to the subject of this podcast he has some pretty clunky moments in the first mission impossible of, of acting and i think that his best moments of acting in the first film especially and to an extent in this latest one as well are nonverbal acting like those little looks you know that, that you talked about in the bathroom sequence or the little look on the train that he gives before the hook like i mean he has a way of i think projecting humor or, or giving a little certain layer to an interaction from a look you know and that's like a charisma thing you know when it comes to delivering actual specifics about his character's motivation or history i think it's a lot more dependent on the writing and I think as the series has evolved and Ethan Hunt has gotten more like complex as a character and Cruz has had more say in how that character has evolved, I think his performance as Hunt 
it's a lot more natural in this latest one than it is in the first Mission Impossible. I completely agree. Definitely. Well, one other thing, I mean, we've talked about Ethan Hunt, but what about Ethan Hunt's women? <laughs> oh, uh, my God. He's so aromantic, and they always, he always gets like these... Well, obviously, there's this grand love story of Julia that is not in the first movie. I'd completely forgotten the whole thing about his parents being the or his mom i guess hey there, there's one of ethan hunt's women uh being the the motivation the first one but like yeah. he's had this grand love story tragedy of julia since i think the second movie third third third, third, third yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and like this latest movie like they decided to like fill that out a little bit and give her some closure which i think i like how they did that i'm glad that they i'm glad they did it it works yeah and there's like the suggestion of romance with ilsa faust which i don't care for because i just think like i don't know i i've never and i'm not the, on, the only person who said this but i've like never really cared for tom cruise as a romantic leading man it just it has never really worked for me and, and as ethan hunt it really doesn't work for me Jay, i'm trying to think when it has worked jerry Maguire didn't yeah or some jerry not, not into jerry Maguire. Yeah. Mm, I, yeah. I, I was pretty young when I saw Jerry Maguire. I don't it's think. good. I actually watched it about it you know, a couple months ago. It's 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 really good. I mean, I think he can be like romantic in the classic sense of the word, but in terms of having like on screen romantic chemistry, it's really forced here. Yeah. Here here, just to limit it to to this. To this yeah, it, it they sort of like. There's only two women he's ever really had chemistry with, and, and it's like, really? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he took Does my breath away at Top Gun. And, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, but there's isn't that kind of a line in in, in Fallout though? It's like there's only two women. Yeah, yeah the whole mm-hmm. the whole sequence is like. I, I mean, I think it says something that that has to be explained in a monologue. That's he has emotions, and here is a list of yeah. them, <laughs> because otherwise it wouldn't necessarily come across. Yeah, and I mean, Ving Rhames also cares charismatic and just has a way like a calm and almost fatherly way of bringing across information that I think is about as effective as that that could have been but I don't know I mean I kind of liked his chemistry with Ilsa in Rogue Nation and then here all of a sudden uh, she's like a child that needs his protection and the, the the way these movies go back and forth between women are tough capable trained agents that can do amazing things and they're vulnerable scared children who need his protection over and over and over we see that dynamic and it it squicks me out when when is she a child that needs his uh, in this i don't yeah. in fallout yeah. just there's just the constant like you, I mean, you she's so much on the outside of things a lot of the but time. every time he runs into her he's like i got you out you were safe like i'm just trying to protect you here you need to continue to get out she's like i, I can't that's not how that's not how it works so then he goes and does all of this stuff to try to get her out again like he did in the last film and like in rogue nation she saves his life multiple times and his reaction is still kind of like i'm going to rescue you i'm going to it's like the two of them seem to be living in entirely different worlds in terms of what she needs Mm. but the film keeps kind of veering forcibly towards the narrative of what she needs is what he thinks she needs and I just don't buy it. And I think that the whole, like, there's only been two women thing, like, Fallout, like, really, I think, makes an effort to closely associate Ilsa and Julia in a way that I don't really care for, because it does kind of play into Ethan's whole thing about failing the woman he loves and trying to keep her safe from harm. And Fallout is just so much about 
Ethan's like fear of the worst happening, mm-hmm. you know? And so he is, he's been projecting that onto Julia for several movies now. And I feel like this movie like is kind of doing the work to transition that anxiety onto Ilsa. And it does kind of feel at odds with how she was introduced to this series as, you know, someone exceedingly capable in her own right. And she is still exceedingly capable in this movie. She's Ethan Hunt-like. I mean, yeah. I think, I think it's, her appearances are the strongest when they basically just present her as an equal to Ethan Hunt. Yeah. And, and, and right down to the unclear motivations and, and, and uh, some you know, misinterpreted loyalties. And I think it's interesting. I mean, this entire series is about him protecting people he cares about. And if you squint and look sideways and and pretend that they were all like written with a thoughtful continuity, you can trace that back to his loss of his first team mm-hmm. in the first film. I actually wrote in my notes like this is the formative incident, mm-hmm. you know, this this is the Ethan Hunt tragic origin story. Sure. You know. So when he goes just way 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 out of his way to save Benji and Rogue Nation, you can still feel like he feels that protective urge towards everybody that he's designated as his family. It's just only with women does it also take on this sort of laborious uh, and we have to make it romantic too for some reason and it like that aspect i love the image of him as like he lost his father figure in the first film because his father figure was a traitor. He's perpetually dealing with either traitors or people who think he's a traitor he's constantly trying to protect the people that he cares about i love all of that like that that speaks to me emotionally and then you turn around and turn it into this sort of combination paternal romantic thing and it all of a sudden it gets weird i would be remiss if i did not mention this hilarious article by our friend uh, matt decim at slate he wrote a an article that it entitled get ready for mission impossible fallout with this recap of the entire series from michelle monahan's character's perspective <laughs> uh. <laughs> and it is this great breakdown and I, I'll share this about Mission, the first Mission Impossible, about director Brian De Palma wasted no time breaking Mission Impossible loose from the TV series it was based on. That starts with the unconventional way he handled the carry of Julia Mead. De Palma keeps her completely off screen throughout the entire film <laughs> and doesn't even allude to her existence. Um, it's very clever and worth checking out and kind of an interesting uh, supplement to what we're talking about with that particular character. Um, that's fun. It's very fun. Uh, and what about uh, what about Mission Impossible? What about Emmanuel Bayar? I mean, there's an element to that character that is very De Palma in that in that when Ethan Hunt suspects that she is in cahoots with uh, the, the bad guys, there's an element of sexual threat, of sexual violence, etc., et which is you know. <laughs> Very much a De Palma kind of thing. What did you make of that character, the overall scope of that character in the film? I thought it was super weird and just very Brian De Palma-y that he responds to she might be a traitor by sort of making as though he's going to rape her. Like, it doesn't fit in that character as we later come to know him. It doesn't fit in anything Tom Cruise tends to do. And it just feels really forced to me. It's just a very thorough search. (laughs) (laughs) which Um, has to take place on a bed for some reason i think she plays it very well though i I think playing it's like someone who actually cares about a much older husband who is capable as an agent herself but also 
kind of reads as a helpless femme, but also a femme fatale. And it's, it's all, um, I mean, she's just very good in, in, in a role that's kind of impossible. And, and, and it's like I, she's got some sort of impossible mission. Yeah. <laughs> and like bringing it back to the Bond parallels, I like that this series hasn't really gone with the femme fatale route too much that I can recall. Like, I don't know that the vulnerable at-risk woman is necessarily a, a better archetype to, to commit to. But I guess just in terms of like what the Clara character could have been and if the series had kind of decided to commit to something different. I mean, Claire is 50% of what I'm thinking about when I talk about a woman who, in theory, is uh, trained and capable. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's an agent, too. But what we see of her is, you know, vulnerable and doe-eyed and needing his protection. Although we we don't really ever understand, like, what her skills are. Like, she's, she's in the getaway car. And that, I think, might speak more to her relationship with John Voight's character. Like, I mean, there's it's a whole story there, obviously, you know, but I don't think she's necessarily introduced as hyper capable and powerful the way that Ilsa Faust, for example, is. Yeah, I mean, she's, Certainly not to that level. She's no. powerful as a femme fatale, not, not powerful as a physical being who, who yeah. who's, who's highly trained or whatever in, in of a level with Ethan Hunt in terms of whatever skill set she might have. But, but then what comes of that? Like the, the scene where she's sitting in the sleeping bag and she reaches out to him and kisses his hand and he looks like he's never had his body touched by a woman before (laughs) in spite of nearly assaulting her earlier Mm -hmm. and then we just kind of fade to black like are we meant to believe that she seduced him or that there he has feelings for her coming out of whatever that moment is Mm because i feel like the film plays it after that like something happened and whether that was they had sex or she tried to get him to and couldn't. Like, John Voight definitely plays off a, like, she used her wiles on you and something happened, but it wasn't what I wanted to happen. But I don't know what happened because I I don't sense any emotional fallout from it. There's kind of that teasing aspect to that character. I mean, maybe, and that's, again, the femme fatale thing where you're thinking, well, is she duplicitous? Where do her loyalties lie? I mean, these are things that, that she gets to kind of sustain and hold throughout the film until the plot sort of reveals itself, which is a role, maybe not a terribly satisfying role, but I kind of think that's her function in the narrative. One important contrast between these two films is how Mission Impossible as a franchise has evolved from De Palma's version, which is sort of a Hitchcockian twist on the spy thriller, and Fallout, which is which is much more about stunts and physical action, and so so the, so in that sense, the two films are quite different. In the subsequent films, from the subsequent sequels after the first Mission Impossible, kind of kept building toward what we see in Fallout. So maybe that's worth talking about. I wonder if all long running spy series or long running action s- series kind of drift in the direction of james bond after a while <laughs> where where you do have to top what's come before and then you know the set pieces become even more distinct and and bigger and becomes less about everything else except for that um i guess we don't have a we don't have a huge sample pool but that, that's sort of my impression of this is that it gets bondier as it goes well, i mean it, what do you what choice do you have i mean if you're yeah. making a sequel and you're not telling some big serialized story then what do you have to do for the sequel to kind of keep uh put uh, butts and seats and i think it's really about just amplification if you're an amplification in this case means you know bigger and more exciting set pieces well and it also extends to the stakes i mean i'm not saying that the stakes are not high in mission impossible but they are specific 
to the world of spies. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's this list that they don't want to get out that would unmask all of their secret agents around the world. Like that's obviously a high stakes scenario for Ethan Hunt and the IMF, but it's not necessarily a world ending event. And let's see, when when did this series officially like transition over to being always like world ending events that, that are being averted? Like the last three have all involved nuclear the uh, materials mm-hmm. from at least ghost protocol on well, i mean three was it's fun that nobody or, really remembers yeah too. philip <laughs> seymour hoffman right i think he had a fairly nefarious yeah. sort of 9-11 inspired uh, uh plot yeah well yeah and terrorism came into play mm-hmm. probably pretty close to after 2001 if i if i had to guess you know mm-hmm. um, certainly would make sense yeah in terms of i i guess the transition from spy movie to stunt based action spy movie you know i think maybe it along with the constant like escalation of the action or suspense elements comes the escalation of stakes and the way that those stories are told have to match the stakes maybe yeah and that's the other evolution too and i even thought about trying to pitch an article about this but i couldn't quite formulate a good enough pitch but the first one is definitely a post-cold war who's the enemy now you know why don't we spies are like you know turning on each other like these these crisscross loyalties and then i think it evolves post 9-11 to become i think it's partially because of that i mean i think it's a combination of escalating stakes for the franchise and then the, the way the world has changed and, escalating stakes for the world uh, escalating stakes for the world i mean i mean you know, the first one's kind of it's from the same moment that produced Goldeneye, where where it's it's the old world order is crumbled. Who's who's going to be on top? And everyone's trying to grab a piece of it. Uh, and that's that's sort of the the sense of that's the world of those films, and and the in reflecting the world around them. And that's definitely changed. But both have changed over the years. I miss the the confusion of the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> I I think maybe in the 90s there was a little more of a feeling of like power in the right hands was always a good thing. You know, in this case, it's secrecy in the right hands. Mm-hmm. It's all of these hidden agents staying hidden is a good thing because it benefits the United States. And I think as the series has gone forward, it's been more and more about, you know, who has power and whether that's a good thing. And that just that whole, like, is the IMF a f- like an inherent good or, you know, is it too much power just keeps coming up over and over again. And I think that that reflects an ongoing distrust, like worldwide with leadership and, you know, a concern about who's in charge and what they're, what they're doing with it. And like a hope that there are a couple of good men that, you know, are behind the scenes making everything work, but not necessarily a belief that that's true. IMF is deep state. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, so Mission Impossible is available on DVD and Blu-ray and on all the usual streaming sources. If you're a Stars subscriber, it's currently available Letterboxd, which isn't always a guarantee on cable channels. Mission Impossible Fallout is in theaters now and should stick around through the end of the summer. Uh, We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. 
We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, you know what it's going to be. I, I had a completely different plan for this, but I'm clearly just going to punt and say that people should see The Man from Uncle. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm not the world's biggest Guy Ritchie fan, but yeah, that's uh, good. <laughs> I, 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 I've, I've uh, on and off appreciated some of the stuff that he's done. Swept away? Uh, you know, I never saw Swept Away. Okay. I mean, for me, it was really his earliest films, uh, Snatch and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. There were, I think, moments uh, in the first Sherlock Holmes. I got a laugh out of a lot of sequences in King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, which is a thoroughly, it's the kind of thoroughly redonkulous movie that makes for a great drinking game with friends. <laughs> but The Man from Uncle was just one of those films I walked into expecting nothing and was just completely taken. Taken, I guess, by the chemistry between Henry Cavill and Army Hammer, like the way they play out this relationship of two agents from opposing forces who don't like each other and don't want to deal with each other. A lot of what we're seeing exactly in Mission Impossible Fallout, there's just that anti-chemistry of both of them wanting to one-up the other. Both of them want to be James Bond. It's just Army Hammer wants to be a Russian James Bond. They have very different ways of going about things. Uh, they have just sort of very precise ways of dealing with the world. And they clash with each other, but they're forced to work together. It's your classic mismatched buddy movie, except instead of cops, they're, you know, secret super agents. But it's it's funny, you know, the two of them together are funny. And the film maintains a sense of humor that I don't love everything it does. But a lot of what it does is stylish and fast paced and fun and based in a kind of chemistry that a lot of action movies just don't have. And in part, that's because so many people are trying to make their action movie heroes the ultimate badass. And here you can kind of see the ridiculousness of both of them. They're both kind of badasses. And you get to see that in the first sequence where they meet and fight. And it's, uh, you know, it's that bathroom sequence. It's exciting and terrifying and fun. But you see through their rivalry with each other, like the vulnerability that makes them both interesting. And there's a Bond gets captured and tortured scene with one of them uh, that I just find very stylish and moving and a, a really interesting way of, of putting a new spin on the genre. I just I really like this movie. And it's a little bit hard to explain why, because it is in some ways, you know, yet, yet another franchise starter that failed to start a franchise. Um, but I enjoyed it a lot. I think people should watch it. Man from Uncle. Yeah, I, I remember giving it somewhat of a mixed review, but it, it definitely seems to be a film that's found a lot of fans uh, and something maybe I, I underestimated a little bit. Keith? Um, I am also recommending a movie in which people team up and do things but <laughs> <laughs> great uh, transition yeah, yeah. We, we're all about funny connections here on the next mm. show. Uh, uh, as a show i watch with my daughter that would probably watch even if i did not have a daughter called teen titans go on the cartoon <laughs> network um, is there a big bathroom fight in Teen Titans there, there, Go? There's not. There's b bathroom humor. There's yeah, there's plenty, a lot of jokes plenty, about butts. Plenty, a lot of butt and fart jokes. Gosh, I got to take, take my little one to that. Yeah, one. no, it's delightful. It's a very clever show that is basically aimed either at kids with a silly streak um, who like absurd like superheroes doing things and butt and fart jokes, uh, <laughs> and then people who are like kind of 
deeply steeped in DC comics lore to catch all the in jokes and, and strange references. And, and, uh, so we sit there together and then, then there's a little, you know, she's on, she's in one camp. I'm in the other. And, uh, it's a show that's made for best. I was worried it wasn't, you know, what works at 11 minutes at a time would not necessarily work, you know, at feature length, but it's, it's a delightful film. It's, uh, uh, actually finds an actual narrative, sees it through. It actually has a, a little bit more heart. Uh, like in sincerity than than the TV show, which I don't I don't necessarily approve of, but it works, it works here. Uh, it should be mentioned that one of the things I, I love about Teen Titans Go is that everybody hates Robin, who's their leader, and uh, some episodes end with characters just dead, and there's no continuity, and they're they're fine by the next episode. Uh, but um, it's a, a clever extension of the show, but it's also a nice riff on superhero movies. A lot of it involves around Robin feeling inadequate because no one's ever made a Robin movie. Uh, they go see a movie called Batman again. Which <laughs> uh, and there's fun in jokes like Nicolas Cage turning up as Superman, which he almost was once, uh, oh, um, wow. and delightful songs. There's a like Kevin Smith. There, there's, a, yeah. there's a great sequence involving heroes' origin stories. Yes, that that's is, the best sequence. Of the, yeah, it's excellent. Oh, wow. Yes, I, I fully support this recommendation. I, I reviewed it for Vox.com and gave it four stars. Yeah, so. it's out of four or out of five. five. Yeah, that's all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like also there's there's a mix of animation styles. Mm-hmm. They find different things. There's, there's and the short. A short film at the beginning, short a DC girl by Lauren Faust, yeah. uh, creator of My My Little Pony: Friendship is Magic, uh, oh gosh, which is this. quite good too. Uh, I, I, it seems like she's not to get too sidetracked, but she's like never seems to get another full on project. That she like does these little short things that never get developed. So hopefully this will be. Something, I think I think it is going to be something that'd be, that'd be good. It was very yeah. it was very clever. But yeah, all right. Well, maybe we've gone enough about this because I. Did I mention the songs? The songs are oh awesome. no, yeah, the, songs the songs are so good. The songs are really good. Uh, the Teen Titans rap is it's amazing. And, uh, it's a yeah. song by Michael Bolton that yes. uh, should should be nominated for an Oscar. Yes, uh, so good stuff. If you're not familiar with the show, it's on every hour of the day on Cartoon Network. Basically, I think they maybe show some other shows once in a while, but it's, it's always on. Um, and it's at theaters now. How about you, Genevieve? Um, I'm also going to recommend a movie that is in theaters now, or should still be when you hear this. Uh, and that movie is Blind Spotting, which is a first-time feature from director Carlos Lopez Estrada, uh, which was written by and stars David Diggs, best known for originating the dual role of Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton, uh, alongside his partner Rafael Casal, a spoken word poet who's made several appearances on Deaf Poetry Jam. Uh, this movie premiered at Sundance and released in theaters a week after Sorry to Bother You, a film with which it shares many surface parallels, including its status as a passion project of an Oakland-based rapper. Um, it's a setting in Oakland. Uh, it has thematic interests in race and capitalism, and arguably a tendency to stuff too many ideas into a single movie. But despite all of that, Blind Spotting is a very different sort of film from Sorry to Bother You, uh, focusing on very different types of characters, uh, specifically a pair of childhood best friends, Colin and Miles, played by Diggs and Casal, respectively. Colin, who is black, and Miles, who is white, work together as movers in their hometown of Oakland, which is rapidly gentrifying to the vocal chagrin of Miles, who spends much of the movie overcompensating for the fact that he shares a skin tone with those he perceives to be doing the gentrifying. Colin, meanwhile, is just trying to keep his head down and get through the last few days of his probation, which stems from an incident whose nature is revealed over the course of the film. And when Colin witnesses the police shooting of an unarmed black man, the echoes of that incident and how it relates to his friendship with Miles become louder and louder. It all leads to a climactic, reality-breaking moment that will probably not work for some people, and I've already seen it called out as being too much. Uh, But it worked for me in large part because of Diggs' performance, which is incredibly arresting in this moment in particular, but also the rest of the film more broadly. 
Uh, there are times when this definitely feels like the work of a bunch of first-time filmmakers who just wanted to put all the ideas and all the stylistic flourish into their first go, but I think it definitely works more than it doesn't, particularly when it keeps its focus on the ground-level story of Colin and Miles' friendship, which is sort of a locus point for all these other ideas. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating and very watchable film, which I think, like I said, will still be in theaters by the time you hear this. Um, so, blind spotting. Check. Have you? Have, I don't think any of you have seen it yet. Have you yet? No, no. I don't really want. It's to on my. It. It's on my agenda. There, like, there were like four films at Landmark I really wanted to see, and uh, I saw t- knocked out two of them last week, and I'm going to knock what out. What two did you knock out? Uh, one of them is going to be something I recommend in the uh, uh, in just a moment, and then the other one was uh, Leave No Trace, which yeah. of course I, which is phenomenal. That's one of mine. That and Blind Spot. And then, and then the then. Blind spotting and and um, the yes, Gus Van Sant. I still need to see the. Yeah. Uh, don't worry, you won't get far. Enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious what all of you, but especially what Scott thinks of this big climactic moment. I'm so on, uh, on please it. report back. But uh, you're keeping us in suspense, Scott. What is <laughs> what is that last movie you okay. saw that you want to recommend? Well, so we had talked about potentially pairing Eighth Grade with Welcome to the Dollhouse, another dark portrait of a middle school outcast. But since the window on that idea has closed, I wanted to be the upteenth person to recommend Bo Burnham's directorial debut. But since it's hard for me to talk about the film as authentic to the experiences of an eighth grade girl, uh, though I certainly believed it certainly seemed quite plausible to me, I did identify strongly with her father, uh, played here by Josh Hamilton. As father to Kayla, an awkward adolescent played wonderfully by Elsie Fisher, uh, Hamilton is is playing a type I recognize, the sad, earnest, would-be cool dad who's trying to understand what his daughter's going through but doesn't know how to reach her or make her feel better. The relationship reminded me of what good parenting ultimately is, not someone who's going to be your best friend for life or who can connect strongly with experiences they haven't had in decades, but somebody who's simply there, patiently awaiting the moment when their child really does need them and can give them a boost. Um, so it was a very touching aspect in, in, a, in a film that, that really is very funny and, and, and daring and a, a treat. I mean, I think it's it sort of earned its reputation. Has everyone seen it at this point? I... No, I can't believe I haven't seen it because I've never like, uh, this is like the Lady Bird last year in terms of like movies <laughs> that feel like they were just made especially for yeah. me to see. And it's I'm, really pro- I'm probably going to go see it this and week. It, and I, you know, it, it, it seems, again, seems very attuned to what it's like to be in eighth grade now and it not, and of course it made me sad and horrified about <laughs> about i mean i have a daughters who are seven and ten so th- say three and and six years from now i'll be handling this emotion i mean for me eighth grade was by far the hardest grade uh in terms of my my own schooling i had just moved from a small town in ohio to a suburb in atlanta and i was the new kid and we had moved i was at two different schools that that year and uh, it was a very um, difficult time, and I think it's just a difficult time for for any any kid. Um, and the film has a lot of insight in, in, into that. So I'm curious, of course, to see what the rest of you think. I saw it. I'm the only one who's seen it. No, I saw it. For you. No, I loved it. I, I yeah, I think it's I think it's terrific. And and I I kept worrying about it. I kept worrying that it would be you know kind of be take a turn for the phony or the contrived and, yeah. and just it it just didn't it does I know, take I know, a turn i'm curious to, i know you're yeah, i know yeah. you're, you're you're not in love with some of the things that happen at the end of the movie yeah. but i've, which I've we heard arguments spoil here, that but, are sort of turning me around on it a little no bit. i think it's all solid i think it feels more like an incremental uh lifting out than than a big turnaround so and um yeah i love and i also love this her, her little play date 
great. Uh, I love that scene. Oh, great. Yeah, anyway, so. and we're doing that, and we're recommending a bunch of things that people can see in theaters right now. Yeah, and also, with the exception of Tasha's, all uh, first-time feature filmmakers. Mm, a bunch of, bunch of debuts. Always coming up with connections. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out August 21st and 28th. Tasha, what do we have coming up? Steven Spielberg more or less kicked off the entire idea of the summer blockbuster with his 1975 classic Jaws about a giant shark terrorizing a main town during the height of tourist season. His adaptation of Peter Benchley's novel famously minimized how much of the shark audiences saw, a choice that he made for technical reasons rather than artistic ones, though it certainly paid off artistically as well. The new shark movie, The Meg, starring Jason Statham as a deep-sea diver who encounters a prehistoric giant shark, doesn't seem to be making as much of a secret about what its mega shark looks like. But it's also based on a book, so it's got to be just as good as Jaws, right? All all adaptations of books are. (laughs) Granted, uh, Spielberg's early summer film set up high expectations for the rest of 1975's summer movie season. John Turtletop's action movie is flailing up from the depths at the very end of the summer, which is usually considered a bit of a dumping ground for movies. And where Spielberg's classic has a touch of Moby Dick and Mutiny on the Bounty and Old Man on the Sea about its story of a tyrannical controlling old sailor who's obsessed with bringing down an elusive deep sea beast, the Meg looks pretty goofy. But comparing the two will give us an opportunity to talk about the highs and lows of cinema, the way the same themes and ideas can enliven films with very different tones and objectives, and the enduring appeal of the shark movie. And who knows? Maybe the Meg will be better than Jaws. (laughs) Narrator, it wasn't. (laughs) In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible Fallout, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps. Oh, I'm all over the place. You can you can find me at uh, you know the Rolling the Rolling Stone. <laughs> you can find me uh, occasionally at Vox and, and the Virgil. I'm on Vol- I'm at Vulture a lot these days. Hitting the V's pretty pretty hard. Mm-hmm. You can find me on Twitter at at Phipps three thousand, and I collect my clips at keithphipps.com. And Genevieve, how about you? You can find my work at the Culture Section at Vox.com, which includes a film review, something Yay. I haven't done oh. lately of Teen Titans Go. And another one. And probably another one. Oh, are Maybe. you not going to do the uh, Spy Who Dumped Me? We'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to be determined. Yeah. She, she may dump that film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> TBD. But uh, yes, you can find my work at Vox, and I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha, how about you? You can find me over at TheVerge.com, uh, writing about film and television, and being the film and television editor. You you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at The Rolling Stone, just like Keith. Uh, also, New York Times, Washington Post, Vulture, and other uh, fine outlets. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. 
Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.